Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very, very humble opinion. Today we're talking about the new documentary film, The Man from Mo Wax, that charts the journey of music pioneer James Lavelle, which is out now in the UK and it soon will be out in the US. With director Matthew Jones and producer MJ McMahon about how they made it, their careers and the difficulties of making a micro-budget documentary film. I am Giles Alderson, director of the psychological horror feature film, The Dare, and the feature documentary, World of Darkness, which is being released in the US on the 18th of September. It's super exciting. I'm sure you're over the moon with joys and delights from the world that is being released in the US, but it is, and you can get your copy. There'll be links in the show notes. If you want to buy it, please do it's a really cool documentary myself and kevin lee made along with andrew roger who was a cinematographer on that and we went all over the world filming wonderful people who play the game world of darkness we chart the story from the very beginning with mark rain hagen and the weak brothers when they came up with vampire the masquerade the world of darkness is a in-depth documentary and a profile of the cult role-playing games world of darkness and Vampire the Masquerade. It created a phenomenon in the 90s, a zeitgeist that helped shape and define film literature, fashion and club culture at the time. It was huge. It influenced everything from the TV series True Blood and the Underworld film franchise to club fashions. And there was a lawsuit against their own fans. We go in depth about what happened from the very beginning when the game was created to now. The ups and downs of the company, White Wolf Media, who still make World of Darkness. It's a really cool doc. I hope you enjoy it. You can see the trailer and have a look. If it's for you, then do watch this and do support. Talked about it long enough. It's out on the 18th. There it is. Little plug. Done. There you go. Um, I'm also the producer of A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, which is massively in post. And the score got finished the other day. Staten and Poppy were there in the recording studio and they tweeted out a picture. Um, Follow them, A Killer's Guide, on Twitter. You'll follow that journey there. Uh, And I'm also the producer, which we filmed very recently, of Cassette, which is now obviously just starting post. So there you go. Um, Welcome to this week's show. Thank you for listening. You know the drill by now. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can listen to us in many places, including SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts. The list goes on and on. And we are proud members of the BritPod scene and the PodFix Network, which is a collection of podcasts, podfixnetwork.com, where they have some really cool podcasts in one place. A lot of them are about filmmaking. Do check that out. And why not check out some of our previous episodes, all 73 of them, Uh, all on indie filmmaking, all on how to make feature films and some on shorts as well and some on acting with Mark Strong and Tim Spall and Rupert Graves and some brilliant ones on directing and producing Uh, and a fantastic one uh, on how to raise finance for your feature films and the best way to go about that. Check it out, search for it, find it. Um, Right, on to this week's podcast. We are coming at you from Raindance today, actual Raindance, our brilliant collaborators. They've kindly given us their Biffa room. So we're in here, slightly echoey, 
but it's lovely little place to record the podcast thank you thank you very much the rain dance offer is the same as last week's actually screenwriters how many times have you been told to obey the template and follow the formula what if instead you could learn how to write the script that only you can write a unique script that will stand out what screenwriter wouldn't want to spend five evenings with a script coach huh so our friends at rain dance are giving you a unique opportunity to spend five Monday evenings with one of the most seasoned and experienced screenwriters living in Europe, the American, Jürgen Wolf. You will learn how to generate an endless flow of ideas, how to create screenplay characters that come alive, how to go beyond the templates to write a breakthrough screenplay, and how to find the time and confidence to write it. Guerrilla Warfare for the writer. The series starts on Monday the 15th of October at 6.30 at Raindance Film Training Centre. And you, because you listen to this podcast, get 20% off. Discount code is RDPodcast20. No one else in the world gets this. It's the Filmmakers Podcast special code. Our special relationship with Raindance. RDPodcast20. The links are in the show notes. It means, basically, you can attend the whole series for just £170. What more can you ask for? You're a screenwriter, get involved. Or you want to be a screenwriter, get there. You can also use the same discount code to book the individual classes. Right, let's get on to today's wonderful guests. There's two of them. There's Matthew Jones and MJ McMahon, who made the fantastic, really fucking fantastic documentary film, The Man from Mo Wax. Uh, Matthew is a multi-award winning creative director and producer. He's made commercials for television and cinema as well as promos and cutting-edge digital interactive content uh, for companies like Sky, Nike, Jameson, Picturehouse Cinemas. This is his first feature film, The Man from Moax. Uh, what a great, great start for him as his first feature film. Uh, when you see it, you'll realise why. Even if you just watch the trailer, you'll realise why uh, these guys are going places. Matthew's a, a producer, previously produced the award-winning epic short film Hawk, which was theatrically released in selected cinemas in Wales in front of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows party. Uh, his second short film, the multi-award-winning Gin and Dry, was uh, funded by Film London through their Borough Fund scheme and was nominated officially for over 13 international film festivals. He also produced The Girl in the Dress, which premiered at the BFI and went to London Short Film Festival as well. This was quickly followed by his fourth film, fourth short film, Killing Time, starring Brian Cox and Charlotte Riley, which was nominated for Best Comedy at the Aesthetica Short Film Festival. MJ McMahon, he's worked in the industry for over 16 years. Uh, started as a runner, post-production company, moved across to Molinaire, worked there for nine years as one of their senior post-production consultants, where he worked on over 200 productions, including the feature films The Nine Muses. He was associate producer on Cherry Tree Lane, and he was a film executive on the Oscar-winning The King's Speech. Uh, and in 2009, Matthew and MJ co-founded the production company Capture, where they produced loads of online content and commercials. Check out their website. Uh, you won't be disappointed. They're a very cool company. Very cool indeed. Between them and through their film division at Capture, and they made this documentary, The Man from Mo Wax, which had its world premiere at South by Southwest, was selected at Nashville, Sydney Film Festival, Melbourne International Film Festival, and it had its European premiere at the 60th BFI London Film Festival. The film is out now. It got to the number one uh, in the music DVD charts 
and it got to number three in the vinyl charts as well that's how cool the score is and the film is out in the US in October November got to give a huge filmmakers podcast thank you to David Whitney for sending me an email and saying you do need to speak to these boys they'll be brilliant for the podcast and they're great guests thank you David they are much appreciated and I hope all is well with you so Without further ado, welcome to the show, director Matthew Jones and MJ McMahon, and AKA Mac. How are you doing, boys? You all right? Very good. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm delighted to have you. I thought your film was fantastic. I really did enjoy it. I didn't know what to expect, because I'd heard of James Lavelle, and I've heard of his world. Uh, I used to DJ back in the day, so I was like, but mine was more housey stuff. Uh, a lot of my mates went to trip hop, but not me so much. So when I was, I was like, okay, cool, I'll watch this. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because it wasn't necessarily about the music, but about the man and the people behind it. It was cool as fuck. But before we get there, let's talk about your beginnings and how you started. Um, yeah, let's start with you, Matthew. Well, how did, why did you want to become a filmmaker? What, what happened? I, uh, how did I get into it? Well, I, weren't, I think I wanted to become a filmmaker because I wanted to make cool films that I grew up watching. That's the ultimate reason. But how did I get there? How am I here? That's a long story. It's about 10 years, I think, from where we are now. Really? Um, I, well, I came back. I came back from uni, kind of two thousand and four, right. and um, I, I just I'd done an English and film degree, yeah, but not like filmmaking, like theory. I'd done, and I had a bunch of friends who were interested in getting into film, and people were runners at post production places and stuff. And I was like, "How can we get into this?" And so we just, we set up a, a short film screening night in wow. a pub in Soho, which is now Dean Street Townhouse, but before was a picture huh. and piano. Yeah. And they had a massive function room upstairs and we set up a short film screening once a month there where we just got a projector, we yeah. advertised online on shooting people and then people sent shorts and then we just had loads and we just screened the best ones every month and had like a networking party. That's a great way to start. And, and the pub said they give us, you know, a load of free beer every week, like, every, well, every time we did it. And yeah. so we were just like, great, we get to network, get to put on good films and it's like start of... Well, you could meet, roads, yeah. well, I was going to say, you meet some amazing people that way who yeah. are making the best films you like at the time. Yeah, and most of those filmmakers, oh. the best ones have gone on to make to make features since, you know. Yeah. Like we screen films by like Tom Harper. Yeah. Um, the Blaine Brothers, um, Daniel Malloy, who are all kind of like stepping up yeah. to like that kind of level. And I met Mac, my business partner there, because he was screening a short film he'd made. We, we picked one of his short films. Right which is before we started working together, he'd made another short, we screened that, and then it kind of relationship grew from there. Yeah, I mean, for me, I remember it quite vividly, actually, because I used to work at that point in time, Molinaire, which was a Mm -hmm. post-production company, still is, Mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of my job, sort of segue into into the industry, and I was making sort of various bits and pieces in my own time, and I made this short film. I probably wouldn't even show it to my grandmother right now, but, <laughs> but at the same time, Matt liked it, which was great. Yeah. And, and I went along to the night um, at the pitch and the piano, as it was known then, and I thought that I could just see straight away he was very respectful of all the filmmakers, as much as he was running it off a kind of, you know... Nothing. A, 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 a nothing <laughs> budget. Everything was considered within the realms of his capability, mm. and, and the selection of films was really good. I remember we saw... A film um, with Ben Whitshaw in before anybody know, really knew who he was. It was kind of, was it seventy seven beds? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was a really good uh, short film. You could see that the actor was obviously going to go on and do well. And uh, yeah, the, the curation was really great, and we just sort of hit it off straight away. And, and you know, free beer helps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, then, and then, yeah, kind of went from strength to strength. I did it with a whole bunch of close friends. It wasn't just yeah. me, um, and we we did it in cinemas. Um, it kind of went from the bar to like going in cinemas. We ended up in about. 15 cinemas around the country that's incredible doing it every kind of once every quarter it was mm. kind of a bit like 
just a short best short film selection of that, that we kind of come across and then we kind of it just didn't we couldn't live off it and it take up loads of our time so in the end it just kind of it came to an end but it, by that point we made a lot of contacts and i'd started making things and mm-hmm. then it grew from there and just from you know at the same time i was working in places like dvd replication houses and mm. doing running on like you know small budget like um indie feature films and running for things like Saturday Kitchen on the BBC and right. little jobs. Okay. Yeah, Nothing little major. jobs, but understanding yeah. filmmaking, understand yeah. how it and works. And then made right. stuff with Matt. We made a really big short film about almost about eight, ten years ago now yeah. with Hawk. Yes. And that kind of started our relationship off and working together. And then since then, we've made about four other shorts that have done like really well at festivals, really uh, Killing well. Time, Gin mm-hmm. and Dry, Girl in the Dress. Mm-hmm. So, we've done, yeah, I've worked with like Mac and two other directors. But the whole time I was a producer. Yeah. And then... Then the man from Moax kind of came along within that period and right. has been in the background for a lot of that time. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. we we started working on that. We picked up a camera. And this is when, by this point, we decided that we were going to work together as set up a production company. Mm-hmm. And one of my pet peeves I sort of said to Matt about various other production companies that I'd maybe witnessed over the years for whomever, you know, in terms of films that got made was they'd constantly be setting up one and then it'd be all falling out and then setting up another one and yeah. all falling out. Mm-hmm. I said, I want to set up one that lasts as long as we can go. Mm-hmm. And then all our product goes through that, you know, yeah. and then that way the brand just slowly builds methodically yes. one by one. And then we ultimately came up with capture yeah. and we liked it because we were really, we didn't want to call it capture films or capture entertainment. Cause we didn't want to uh, sort of assign ourselves into any particular area. We wanted to be open to any creative work mm. as long as we were obviously capturing it. Sorry about the pun, but yeah, so that was kind of the idea. And then we built it on there and, and Hawk was an, was an idea that I was sort of developing at the time when I first met Matt, mm. it was like a kind of epic uh, sort of Welsh fantasy short film. I mean, you know, it's it's it turned out uh, pretty pretty good and did well for us, and we built a lot off the back of that. But then we sort of went through the trials and tribulations of working together and making uh, a, quite a big project, even though it was a short film. You sure. know, it had like uh, 175 visual effect shots in it, wow. six hawks made on the side of a mountain in Wales in the rain and all sorts of weather, <laughs> a crew of 40 people for two weeks. We, wow. we built sets on the side of the mountain. You know, we really sort of went for it and in a way it became a, a practical sort of film school that furthered yeah. my skills that's the first I, I, thing yeah, i'd ever done practically yeah. i mean we yeah. did we shot a commercial before that and some some much smaller commercial work but yeah that was the first thing i did because i didn't come from a film school background so right yeah. yeah and then it's kind of yeah we've gone from there and since then you know the shorts since then have been like funded by film london a couple of times and yeah you've got, got funding to strengthen which is amazing to get funding because it's not easy to get funding especially guys our age it is it's tough but you guys seem to do what was was there anything how did it work for you which guys? film we're we talking about well it could be any of them <laughs> okay. i suppose you go with the bfi route which was um, so the- we we had um first first public funding we got was for a, a film called uh, gin and dry yes which was through the london borough funds um so it was co-funded by film london and uh southern exposures I southern think. exposures yeah, 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 right yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so that, so that's how we've got the first one. And then the second one we got was the girl in the dress, which came through film London short scheme. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just about, you know, keeping your name in the hat, so to speak, and just keep telling people what you're up to, keep in contact with them, keep applying. I mean, I've, right. we've, you know, we've been selected for two shorts, but I've got way more rejections. Yeah. yeah. yeah we applied for <laughs> yeah. a lot, yeah. uh, you know, with various projects. So we just thought we just keep, keep ourselves in the mix, like Matt's saying, and, yeah. and that's like, that- and, and it's keeping the brand 
like you know we were slowly building capture brand. that yeah, helped yeah, it yeah, suddenly yeah. started to people go oh those guys that made that short or those guys that made yeah, that you that's know? Really I mean, I mean like, on the map from Moax we applied for before we kind of got stuck in mm-hmm. years before we kind of we got we got BFI completion funding in the end yeah years before we applied for regular funding like production funding got rejected right so but then we went off and just by hook and by crook started making the documentary yeah and then you know several years later it was like four years between that we came back in 2000 and uh, late 2015 mm-hmm. and we were in a very small niche and this is kind of one of the reasons we got that funding is uh, the BFI at the time, they don't fund documentaries anymore. It's now gone to Doc Society, but at the time they did. And they said, if you're a film that doesn't have a sales agent, but gets into a major festival and you don't have the money to complete, then we offer completion funding. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Oh, so technically you're really? allowed to apply. You're allowed to apply. Yeah, yeah. You have to do all of that and then you have to apply. Right. So, and they can still make a creative decision to yeah, say yeah. no. So like, it's not, yeah, it's not so a guarantee yeah. at that point, but mm. the, that's where we were. And thankfully we, we sort of, we qualified because we got selected for South by Southwest on, mm. for the Man from Moab. Which is huge. Yeah, which was amazing. Weird. For a music yeah. doc as well, it was like, we, yeah. we applied when we were deep in the edit. We had not finished the film. We sent them a rough cut. Yeah. We didn't really expect them to say yes, but we were like, if we don't get in this year, we're definitely going to finish it early next year and then we'll just miss it. So it's this, aim for this or we don't do it at all. Exactly, see that as well. And, and the, the sort of detail behind that is that the deadline for submissions had long passed but our cut wasn't ready. So that's why we hadn't submitted it at that point in time. I mean, it wasn't even coherent at that point. Right. So I think the deadline in that uh, that period was maybe like the 1st of November, 2015. So we submitted, I, I found out the, uh, the name of the, the film programmer, Jan- Janet Pearson, got her email and just emailed her direct nice. and told her our circumstance. This was like on the 30th of November. Yeah. She got back to me that day and then gave us a pass to submit uh, and, wow. a, and a buy, as it were, to, mm. get, uh, to, to at least be considered. And then gave us a two-week extension to complete our edit, so we didn't actually submit until Jeez. mid-December. Had she seen it at this point? She hadn't, seen, nothing, it. She hadn't just... seen anything, other than the description that I'd given her. Oh. But we felt, Matt and I always felt that South by Southwest was perfect because it's film, music, and entrepreneurial sort of aspects, mm. and that embodied in our film. So we've always felt that this would be resonate with them, and thankfully... The British Council helped a lot as well, getting our foot okay. in the door there. It wasn't just us on sure. like cold yeah. calling... South okay. by Southwest, but um, again, I mean, the British Council are really supportive to, That's to film, like, you know, getting into festivals abroad, and they were, they were good at that point as well. Mm. So, and how um, did you get the connection with them? Was it the same thing, just putting capture you, out there? You knew Rachel Roby, I believe, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that was it. Yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah she yeah. really helped us out on that. Right. Yeah, she pointed us in the right direction and gave us guidance. And back in my Molinaire days, I'd worked on some of Rachel's films uh, as a post-production supervisor. Mm. So I was able just to call her up and get her view of, of, of what would be the best way. And, and, yeah, I, think, and I think that's what's important, mm. isn't it, as indie filmmakers, that we do have these collaborations. And the more you do, the more people you know. And if you're nice people... They will help you out and they will yeah. go, yeah, okay, no problem. I see what you guys are trying to do. Yeah. So yeah, keep going. Yeah. And, and it's still, you know, and then I think it's still, I think we've got lucky as well because someone in the South by Southwest selection office is a, a fan of the of Shadow and Uncle. Right. So that helps. Yeah, it does. Because yeah, um, so really it, it's the right age group. And yeah, it was, you know, it's a lot of lucky things, but it, you know, you've mm. got to ride your own luck. You do, you do. You've got to Well, let's jump straight into the film because it's really cool. Um, I'll just give our guys and girls a little taste of what it's about. So this, it's a, it's a pulsating documentary. 
Right? It charts the extraordinary life and career as the underground DJ, icon, music producer, and global trip-hop mogul, James Lavelle. Uh, if you've not heard of James Lavelle, he's he's the guy behind so many cool records, Mowax, but mainly Uncle. And it stars DJ Shadow, 3D from Massive Attack, Futura, uh, Ian Brown, Grandmaster Flash, and Josh Homme. What's the secret of your success? I was always a pushy motherfucker. Where are you going in that little letter? My name's James Lavelle. I was 18 when I started my wax. More wax, more records, more music. My wax is one of the ultimate record labels, wasn't it? James was really a pioneer. Music's changed. You don't have to have had 10 years practicing a guitar and playing the piano to be able to make a record. Kids can just get on a song plot. I met DJ Shadow. Shadow is sort of genius. I loved him. He was my brother. You may not have made this sample. You may not have made those drums. But when you put them together, that's some artistry to that. Don't get me wrong. Most DJs are fucking retarded. <laughs> Check it out. I got a little story to tell with DJ Shadow and James Lavelle. It starts right now in history. You and KLE. The advance notices for science fiction. That's been extraordinary. Epic and defining the 90s will make Lavelle millions. Am I rich? Do I look rich? God knows you lonely souls. Showing up at a studio and checking in once in a while is not the same as making a beat. It was all my idea. Go away from me. Go away from me. There's a lot of jealousy here. Most of them prefer to see him fall. Drugs, drink, everything. Means lucky, isn't it? You get knocked down and you pick yourself up and at the end, hopefully you walk away and you win in some way. sell millions and millions and take over the world and be the biggest band in the world. <laughs> it's cool. It's a really, really interesting documentary. So when I made the World of Darkness documentary, we had a path of where we wanted to go. We knew our, we wrote the beginning, middle and end of it because we were following the life of a, a company who had made the World of Darkness and it had gone highs, lows, ups, downs. Did you do the same here? How did it start off? Where did your idea to go, let's make this doc about James Lavelle come so from? So it started in a pub? Of in, course, in East like London. The best way. <laughs> uh, yeah, my cousin owns a pub in East London called The Marksman, and James oh, um, yeah. was rehearsing in across the road, if you know that area of Hackney, Hackney Road, which is at the premises, which mm -hmm. is a big rehearsal studio for a lot of big music artists. Just yeah. uh, there's rehearsal rooms for like bands and, and and like various artists, and he was rehearsing across the road for Uncle, and this is when they were turning Uncle into kind of a live band set up for the first time in right. like 2006, 2007, mm -hmm. and so he would go across the road and drink in my cousin's pub after doing like loads of rehearsals and my, he got to know my cousin and um him and his wife at the time were 
going to go on the road and record a like some they wanted to do like kind of tour diaries and they yeah. said they need to produce it or someone to like help them out put the camera in the hand and just technically support that pro- that idea so it started there nice. but then and then you know over the course of 10 years it, it never at that point was it going to be the man from Moax. sure but it was through that process they asked us to, i mean this is the short version yeah, but yeah. They, they asked us <laughs> to stick around for their album after that tour and by that time we kind of done a lot of research on on the backstory and mm-hmm. i was like well the reason a film is warranted on james is is the moax story i think um and what he does afterwards is really important but it, only in the context of of what came before and the, the success and the hype and the craziness that happened around moax yeah so then it just kind of went from there really over many years i remember when matt sort of came to me and said oh there's this opportunity to work with uncle and i was like uncle the band and he was like yeah i was like we're fucking doing that i love that and, yeah and, and, i'm on and straight I, just in. Didn't, I didn't know like what the story would be but I, I was a huge fan and i had science fiction album and right. i was you know uncle was sort of uh, uh, sort of a part of my sort of film world in that sense because their music is so cinematic Very which is cinematic. why I, I connected to it mm-hmm. i'm not i wouldn't consider myself a music fan or aficionado at all but those guys i knew about and as soon as he said that, I, th- I thought this could be cool. Um, but we didn't have, like at that point, we didn't really know what the story would be. So we just sort of stuck with it, went on the various uh, journeys, ups and downs. And then we, I think we found ourselves around about 2014 uh, with no director, right. no sort of true no, script. No, or like 2011, late 2011, no. 2012. Well, there was two levels. Yeah, yeah, I think there was a hiatus period when nothing much was happening with Uncle. And then there was in 2014, we didn't have a director. And there was just me and you left on the project. And then we were like, well, what are we going to do? Yeah. So, you know, I, I said, Matt, I think you should now pick up the reins of Run being the it. director here. And he's like, well, if I'm going to direct it, then this is how I would do it, which is like the Yeah, the, the story, story would now. be in the first hour. Mm. And no one had ever told that story of Moax, where it had come from, the music it had been a part of, discovering Shadow, creating the Uncle Project, and then all the other people like Crush and Black Alicious and Money mm. Mark and all the people who were on that yeah. that label in the 90s. And I kind of loved it, but I wouldn't say I was a fan. I didn't come sure. into this. I think it's important as well. I didn't come into this in any way being a, a fan of Uncle's music. I, mm. didn't have, I didn't have their records. And I think that was quite important to have that separation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come into it in love with, the back the back catalogue that would have changed I, your opinion on how you were doing stuff you'd yeah. have done it from a more of a fan point of view whereas you're doing it from i'm a filmmaker yeah i want to tell I, this story yeah i really wanted to look at what you know what's the human uh, my producer we've got a producer in who's based out of la who's helped supported us called brian, brian right okay and um and brian has said recently he said this film really you could take the music out of it you could just you know just, you know replace the music with sports or replace the music with any kind of artistic it could be anything mm. any any kind of business really and it could be the same story um i don't think it has to be music and i thought was good you know it could be could be fashion it could be it could be like that and that's what i think i try to do is try to make it about i feel more about success and friendship and art and commerce not about you know how did dj shadow sample that Mm-hmm. bit of that song and put yes. it in his record i thought that was not where i wanted to go with it as much as it is interesting to some people i thought the broader story of friends becoming great mates you know finding a joint love for something and then falling out for various reasons is more of a, a universal thing i totally agree i think that's what works so well with the documentary is that because if you had gone into depth about the how he put that sample in you'd sort of, you'd lose so many people especially like me 
when I was a DJ, I understand that world, but it's still a little bit like, okay, cool. Well, uh, all right. Whereas, <laughs> whereas this was, it is the friendships and how potentially he fucked that up or how they fucked it up, depending on what happened. And, and you captured that brilliantly. So how, how did you go about well, capturing I, it? Well, I think well, one of the, how did we do it? I was going to say one of the things that, that I liked about what Matt and Alec, the editor, had sort of designed is mm. they'd managed to create this sort of structure where the film worked on multiple levels because of the journalistic approach in terms of the story, because the emotional approach Matt just talked about. Uh, it sort of worked for, if you're a, if you're a Moax fan, then there's lots of layers in there for you to yeah. sort of unpick and the way the music's used at certain points and times, it's for sure. there for you. If you have no idea about that, then at the same time, it's emotionally relevant to you and the right tone is being used. And if you're a sort of doco fan, hopefully, you know, you'll get uh, the kick out of it being a sort of good sort of good roller coaster ride mm-hmm. from a documentary point of view. In terms of capturing it, uh, we managed to sort of uh, do a, a very simple deal with some uh, contacts of mine at Sony that I knew at the time. And they just brought out this camera called this, uh, it was an EX1, wasn't it? I think mm. is what it was called. Sony EX1. Yeah. The we first solid oh. state camcorder. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we managed to blag two of these and we did them a deal. We said, if you give us two of these, as in like, give us two of these. I love yeah. that. He winked when he did uh, that. And, and <laughs> then. We used it for like a five long years. time. Cause I knew we were going to need it for a long time. Yeah. I didn't know we were going to need it as long a time as we did actually need it for, <laughs> but I knew it was going to be a long time. And I said, what we'll do is we'll film. Uncle live at the roundhouse, which is coming up because we've got full permissions to shoot that. And that was in like the first month we had the cameras, wasn't it? it was yeah. Right. And we had like a prototype camera be- just before it came yeah. out. And we, and we knocked mm. out a, a promo for them to one of the uncle tracks. And then they used that all shot on the Sony oh, X1. Brilliant. So they got their promo mm-hmm. and then we got our two cameras for the next five years. Perfect. So then off we went and that's, we sort of had those uh, for the duration of the time to do most of the interviews. And then, as, as time went on but it evolved didn't it I was yeah, like, at yeah, one yeah. point I mean it's not, no slight on Sony but you know just their cameras got better everyone's cameras got better yeah. so we ended up I mean, we, sh- we shot this on every camera you can imagine I, like, I, yeah, I can was see. the main one but you know like start, mini yeah. DV you know like HDV mm-hmm. um, and then you know Super 8 was in there Super 8 yeah, 30, yeah 30, 35 mil has been transferred to Digi there's like there's like red 5k stuff at the yeah. end. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. It so looks... it's just, it's a real, it's kind of, you know, as, as the film took, you know, 10 what? years, the cameras changed and everything's in there. And I kind of like that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The I 70% of this film, I didn't film. Yeah. You know, I wasn't even there. Yeah. So the footage, it's, it's, it's an archive heavy story, yes. you know, yeah. it's, it's not, it's, it's all, and I think that's, it's all the better for it because it gives it an authenticity and a realism. And mm-hmm. you kind of see, you, the idea of the structure of the film is that you, you, you're in James's shoes and it happens as it happened. Mm-hmm. And so trying to keep that in the moment by using archive wherever possible. Not right. that I love talking heads. I'm not in like the Asif Kapadia um, sort of seat where you kind of want to hide them completely. I don't really believe in that. I think that you can get a lot from a talking head. You can't get um, elsewhere, but I think I do like kind of trying to get you in the moment as much as possible alongside that. And, mm-hmm. you know, putting, making it feel like it's primary sources. Yeah. throughout the, the documentary. I think that was really important to kind of making it feel immersive yes. and not making it all feel retrospective. And like this happened yeah. um, because I think then what happens is the jeopardy is the jeopardy of the characters is heightened because you're not suddenly just obviously talking from a modern interview looking back. Mm. So that's, that was important. I agree. I agree. I was just and then finding s- the archive was probably the most. Well, yeah, I was, yeah. was going to say about the archive when James gave us like his own personal collection. It was like in a Tupperware box. Oh. It was like, 
it was like a, a bunch of tapes, but the key ones that we found were in this sort of little Tupperware box. There was about 50 tapes in there, really small. We, mm-hmm. we didn't even know what the hell the format was. Half the size of Mini DV. Yeah, yeah. Micro uh, MV. Right. Yeah, which and- we found out. And then and then what we had to do is we were like, well, how the, f- the fuck are we going to get this into the edit suite? This is like Even Molinaire didn't even know what it was or what Shit. the player was. Yeah. And then we realised that... 1990s, like, consumer format yeah, that they created like, just for themselves. We just, Again, it was Sony. Yeah, we just had the idea of just, like, well, let's just go on eBay and get a player. There must be one there on must there. must be one. Oh. And, we, and there was, and we got it, I don't know, 50, 60 quid. But then digitising it was an issue, because none of the yeah. modern, like, you know, none of the modern software we had would, would recognise the camera or the codec. Uh, so course. in the end, the only thing we could find that would recognise the camera was, like, Microsoft Movie Player. Really? It was the only thing that would actually yeah. go, yeah, I know what that camera is, I know what that codec is, and then I could digitise it to an AVI, which is yeah. what you see in the film. Fuck. And like, we went to the big post houses, they didn't know how to do it, so this was, the only way we could do it was with this micro, <laughs> Microsoft Movie Player. Jesus! And the, and one of the other things yeah. that sort of worked that we set, set ourselves up from, one of the things I'd learned from working on several documentaries for other people whilst I was at Mol- Molinaire, mm-hmm. was the conform, which is the, the sort of process in, in post-production where you take all of your low-res media and then you turn it to full-res resolution media and then from that point on you can grade it and finish the film and it was it was in that sort of time when uh, the industry was transitioning out of that and everybody just started to start working in, fu- in, in full res na- yes. native and i just i just said we just need to set up a dedicated edit suite at capture for however long we need it and we just digitize everything in at full res because the conforms in themselves post houses cost 10 to 15 grand during that time right and um, we obviously you're didn't like, have that like, so uh, we, we needed to arm ourselves with just having the full res and bypassing that and then be able to output a file and just go straight to uh, straight to the grade suite as it were mm-hmm. and uh, thankfully that sort of worked uh, over that period of time if you hadn't have got that footage because this kind of happened on the world of darkness as well um we luckily there was someone had some footage from 20 years ago 30 years ago of them going to to all these conventions and creating the world of darkness and we were like if we we kind of need that footage it kind of sets the backstory in the solid world mm. luckily we got it last minute there was some someone had a box in their garage and eventually we because how do you how do you transport that would you go over there personally and yeah. pick it all up how do you it's if you have to if you have to you do how did you do it it took like four years of building trust of james before he even told us about the was, tapes yeah. right let's jump back to james then yeah. how was james with this whole documentary then because obviously at first it was just saying look i just want to document me and my girlfriend and what i'm doing well, to be fair to him one of the first things that i think he said yeah. to matt was yeah. that he wanted it to be an honest warts and all documentary it definitely whether is. he might now regret saying that <laughs> is fair enough but at the same time he, to be fair to him he was brave enough to say that right off the bat yeah, yeah he was and, like saying i want it to be like hearts of darkness you know great. The, you were like the, brilliant the, the apocalypse now yeah. documentary yes. yeah and yeah. um and I was like, well, okay. <laughs> and it took about four years. And then eventually he just went, I just said, look, I've been asking him for a few months. Do you have any archive? Do you have anything? Who would have some? Can you put us in touch with people that might? And then he, we just did a catch up interview at his studio, just me and him. And he went, and he just looked in his cupboard and went, I think there might be something on there. And he brought out this Tupperware box. And then that was where those micro MV tapes were. And, on and that, it was on that. It was unlabeled on that. But on that footage Tom, was Tom, Tom York. York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, recording Rabbit in the Headlights. Yeah. With, with, yeah. Then digging for records with, with uh, DJ Shadow in like Shit. this amazing basement, which is in the film. Then like footage of him recording with Ian Brown, with Jarvis Cocker, with Brian Eno. And you're like, 
Whoa. Wow. You know, and he didn't know it was there. He must have known that it was important because he kept it all the years, but he didn't know which tape was which. Um, so That must have been like Christmas for you guys yeah, when you got that. Remember, and then we had to go through that process, which took another couple of months. Because you didn't know what find was on the player, it, right? Work out, digitise it, and then watch it. And then you see that what it is. Yeah. And then it was that footage, really, which kind of gave the film a real soul. Mm-hmm. So it was, that was one of the breakthroughs. There were two other key breakthroughs. The other one was um, my girlfriend at the time worked for MTV. Nice. Um, and... They don't have like a, a commercial library you can just search online like Getty or, you know, ITN Source. It's like, um, they, they didn't at the time anyway. I don't know what they do now. But th- so I'd asked just through a contact, can someone just go and look and see what you've got in relation to Uncle and James? And they came back with this tape and they said there's 90 quid just to transfer the digi right. to, a, to a DVD so you can watch it. And that's that, not that, was, that was, that was just, a lot just, out of our budget at yeah, that time. I was going to say, just to watch it. And you were <laughs> yeah. like, well, it could be shit. Yeah, right. it could be nothing. And so we, we went for it. And yeah. that was the backbone of the film, really, because then it was like a 35-minute unedited interview with James from 1997 or six. I can't remember. And it said tape one of two when I got the DVD. And I was just like, oh, my God, there's another tape. So I contacted him and was like, right, this is great. Can I, I'll pay the other £90 for the other tape, definitely. And they're like, oh, you can't do that. Uh, the other tapes, we don't have it anymore. And I said, what do you mean? Went, there was a fire on TV. And for some reason, <gasps> some of the tapes were in the building with the fire and some of them weren't. And the one tape we had wasn't and had been kept in the library. And this had meant that the Moax documentary MTV had planned back then, <laughs> right. when it was all happening, had been shelved because they'd lost half the footage. Right. So we had this unbroadcast 30 minutes of James footage from back in the day when it was all unfolding. And then oh. that was a key breakthrough. And then, so once we edited that with the James tapes mm-hmm. and other footage into like our first rough cut, we then showed that to DJ Shadow's management. Right. And that over again of a long sort of six month to a year process led to him going, okay, I'll be involved and I've got some more archive. And then DJ Shadow then sent us a whole bunch of personal archive and personal photography. And then that's kind of those three things are mm-hmm. key, kind of so important. Yeah. And it gives it such a, a personal touch that you can't, you can't buy. No, you, you can't buy that. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I was going to say at that point in time as well, you've got like James on the camera mm-hmm. and then you cut and then it's shadow holding the camera. Well, I saw that in one of it was in one studio <laughs> yeah. and I went, yeah, holy yeah. shit, they got both camcorders yeah. and they cut. And yeah. he was, I was yeah. like, yeah, so that's nice. That's as pure nice. as you can get in terms of your mm-hmm. subject matter in a documentary. You're getting their own footage of themselves doing what they were doing mm-hmm. intercut with each other. And to be fair, James is like the secret cameraman in this film. because <laughs> oh. he, on A lot of the footage, it's him holding the camera. He's pretty good, actually, if you ask me. But, he is, yeah. Uh, is that the shots of the, them sort of holding their hands in the, yeah, the yeah. hallway and stuff like that? <laughs> Yeah, the head in the hands. Yeah. So, so, so some really of that nice. stuff is shot by him, wow, and then wow. others, it obviously, is shot by Matt, but mm, uh, and other people. But um, but yeah, it's, I thought that was a good achievement uh, that the project had made as well. It's an incredible achievement. So from there, you kind of go. Ooh, Someone's won an award Ooh. here at Rain Dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was us. We should go collect it now. Yeah. Um, when Rain Dance, yeah, there's, there's, they're singing next door. I don't know. They're clapping next door here. I don't know what's going on. It's preparing all good. Preparing for the biffers. Yeah, preparing for the biffers. Um, so how, from obviously there, now you've got your overall piece and you're thinking, right, how am I going to do anything with this? Where do I go? I mean, we had 700 hours of footage, so it took us a, two years to edit 
probably 18 months of actual editing spread over two years with gaps. Right. Because, you know, my editor was great, but he, you know, we couldn't pay him that much. I was going to say, you had to go, I kept going off and editing other things. Are you doing this on pretty much no money at the time? No, well, well, it was drip fed at that point in time. It's a micro budget project. It's not, it's not, you know, it's it's small, but we Mm. did have, we had money to drip feed through. We had some great exec producers. And eventually when the BFI came in to complete it, we had enough money to pay for all the licenses and pay for all the music licenses. But it still took a year and a half to edit. It's like you're creating the path that's not in front of you step by step. Mm. So we were sort of paving that that way, but there was nothing nothing mapped out for us. Nobody wrote a check like, "Here's the money, son, go and make the movie." Sure. You know, it was like we had a little bit, then we did what we could with that. Then some American money came in, then we did what we could with that, and then another batch of cash came in, and that managed to get us the editor for. We thought we could at least guarantee him for like the next six months, right. and then try and get some money during that process. So it was a bit by bit process. And like the that. footage is the same. I have a course of that edit. We had interviews coming in the whole time, so I oh, never yeah. had all of the footage ready to go and go okay what shall i make with this it was like we started with this bit of footage then that led to that bit of footage so Mm -hmm. during the process of editing we were constantly still researching and then one one interview would lead us to another interview because one person was in the film the other person who didn't want to be in the film would suddenly say okay if he's in the film i have to be in the film so it's like this chess game that we so throughout the process of editing we're constantly, my editor must have thought it was a nightmare because I've got a new interview <laughs> and I walk in with this four hour new interview. He's got to break down. Yeah. Yeah. After he's just got just to the gone, end. He's like, I've just but, done this but, bit. But I'm Matt saying. had become like this sort of um, guy who was like distilling his finest bottle of wine and, yeah, and, and using yeah. all these various techniques that were, that were coming in. And we just sort of had to entertain it because the project hadn't really got that sort of uh, progression before where all this stuff was sort of being volunteered mm. at the sort of 10th and 11th hours in that sense. Because, for example, when we premiered at South by Southwest, oh, Joshua Homer was not even in the film. No way. And there was about another five interviews on top of his that weren't even in the film. Yeah, I think once it got to South by Southwest, everyone was like, this is a... Uh- this is serious. This isn't a bedroom project. Yeah, this, this is, is a real thing. So then people that had like held back were like, okay, I'll get yeah. involved. Yeah, because I we, suppose they didn't want to not be involved. That was the thing. It's yeah. like, there's a surely I should be involved because yeah. I was part of that scene. So we screened like a rough cut at South by Southwest. You know, it was like it was like two hours, 10 minutes. Our film now is like 150. Yeah. So it's like 20 minutes. Our film now is like 20 minutes shorter than that version. Mm-hmm. And it's crammed with way more footage and way more interviews and way more stories. So it's like... It's weird. I don't know. It's like but that you, version. We'll never see the light of day again. I was but it's say, a uh, long way away from what we ended up with. James <laughs> even turned up with um, a box of goodies that we oh, hadn't yeah. had at that point after South. Well, he found some more stuff. Yeah, like, <laughs> and, and then Matt found some gems like that. That wicked sort of shot of James taking off the Darth Vader helmet. Yeah, Matt yeah. found that. Right. You know, and then put that into the film, and then contacted. Was that MTV Asia? That no, that, that was that was Channel Four Days. Oh, Channel Four, yeah. like documentary, right from uh, the nineties. Because then you've got to contact all these places yeah. and sort of go, look, can we use your footage in our documentary? Yeah. Yeah. What is the process behind that, and what do people say? It's lengthy. It's a lot of telephone calls and emails, and often you you sort of have to follow up maybe fifteen times before somebody actually responds to you and whether they respond to you negatively or positively you then got to overcome it if it's negative and 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 strike while the iron's hot when it's positive so and then tell you we've got no money and then yeah we did to be fair we had money yeah. we had something to play with once we had the bfi funding we knew but we had kind of set ourselves a total budget for what we could afford total for archive and mm-hmm. then we just tried we kind of divided that amount up between the number of minutes of archive we had and we've got a hit when we're doing these deals we've got a hit 
around this level, yep. give or take, or yep. the whole budget's going to get blown. So then that was the process, really. To, to give you an idea wow. of one of the, hard. the clips, yeah. well, Matt had this great sequence that him and Alec had edited of the man from Uncle, the TV show, mm. um, which sort of is what James, like sort of part, part, partly based at Uncle on, you know. And he used hmm. the... the the, the the voiceover of that to sort of describe the ethos of Uncle because it's effectively the same thing like a bunch um, of people around the world oh, you know it off by Uncle heart. is an organization made up of people of many nationalities so yeah, yeah and the, it's about artists the, how the, working together good, around the world yeah and he cut it together and it was really sort of retro fun and mm-hmm. in keeping of that sort of era and the idea and then we contacted Warner Brothers who ended up uh, who the people that own that and they were like yeah, sure, you can use that. That'll be $36,000 per clip. <laughs> and that's pretty much was my reaction. Like and, a whole budget, and I put the phone down yeah. and I said, you've got to edit it out of the film. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, things like that did yeah. get lost because they were too expensive. But most people, we found, were like... Really like reasonable one of, and fair. Like Charles, yeah. P- Charles Peterson's in the film quite mm-hmm. significantly. Yeah. Yes. And the footage of him, which is back from then, is from a filmmaker uh, called Chris um, Chris Payne, who was uh, at the time was like a 19, 20-year-old filmmaker and was making, he started making a documentary on 16 mil on Charles Peterson. Wow. And then just got to the point in his life where he couldn't finish it and he gave up. And he just, he just, but we knew about it from someone else who was doing club nights with Giles and remembered him. Right. And said, you've got to speak to this guy, Chris Payne. He owns, he definitely shot stuff of James and Peterson back then. So we tracked him down and we got it and he went to his parents' house and he found it in their loft and then gave us that. And then there's like all this great footage of in the nineties mm-hmm. of Giles Peterson and James Avell um, the DJ doing their nightclub the together. Yeah. And you know, things like that happened a lot. There's, there's like, there was one video we, but there was a video of like James's club night with Giles Peterson, which is like a promo for that's how it is, which was a bar rumber on Monday nights. Mm-hmm. And that was on a, we, we just saw it I online. That, I, think. I went to that night. Yeah. I went to that night. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we were like, we found the filmmaker who, who yeah. shot this promo for them. Yeah. And we were like, where's the rushes? Where's the original? He said, I don't, I don't have it. I honestly don't have it. And Swifty, who is the graphic designer. Yes. Had amazing. been given a VHS of the promo, which is the only copy we found. So we ended up digitizing the VHS and that's what you see in the film because no other copy still exists and it was the only footage of that club we could possibly wow. find and to be to be fair to the sort of crowd of people whose world this was who mm-hmm. had all this various bits of photographs and, and footage they were really cool and open the majority of them were really understood what we were trying to do yeah and we were able to sort of tell them what we what we had achieved and then how we'd incorporate what they own and what we could what we could afford to give them and you know 90 percent of them were really great and came forward yeah. and, and supported the project well, that's something we had a good you know once we had some funding on board we did you know we got a good lawyer mm-hmm. got a very good release form a good contract drawn up as a template which which we then used to clear all of this properly yeah, yeah so it is all properly done but it did take a hell of a long time because it was only a team of like there's uh, i did some of it mac did some of it and then we had um henrietta and talisa and lee at cool work to capture all you know all doing chipping away mm-hmm. at the various how many different art pieces of archive how many sources it's like 300 plus isn't it it's a lot yeah i, I, of I lost archive. count of them i only kind of remember the music numbers because there was 55 <laughs> songs i remember that yeah. i remember that but uh you know and all you, that needs to get cleared as well, well of course because yeah, yeah, yeah. james probably doesn't own it himself right, right. outright well, well some, some he huh. does actually oh he does fair. okay and some of the older stuff he doesn't and some of the newer stuff he does yeah because so he is he is sort of he does have writer credits on a lot of the the, the la- uncle stuff in that sense right okay but i mean it was like you know moax was a label that kind of went at the speed of sound and then exploded <laughs> into a million pieces yes and it really did 
leave this nightmare of rights because um like, like for example just to show how complicated the rights issues were when we came to doing the soundtrack universal music put out our soundtrack umc uh-huh. they weren't able to clear some of the tracks that we cleared for the film and they had to come to us for a number of tracks and say look can you get this over the line because otherwise it's not going to be on the soundtrack because we can't Holy we don't know shit. who this is we don't know who that is so we had to, the work we did really for the budget we had was unprecedented really yeah, we had like it. 55 tracks some of those tracks had like 12 people you needed to contact and get a, a, a you know a piece of paperwork in place to be able to use the track and a yes from every single one of them yeah you yeah. need a yes one yeah. of them says yeah. no and yeah. you can't so, use but, it right exactly yeah. and there's a lot of you know the film as, as it documents is a lot of beef and you know old yeah. old grudges still you know, there that so we had to overcome yeah. all of that and we, and we also had to sort of um go after certain songs in a certain order mm. so so you couldn't even um you couldn't just go oh let's just pick any track and then just start clearing it it's sure. actually a very specific order yeah in terms of the politics of the friendships and the relationships that it actually needed to yeah. happen and bit by bit we had to, we separated them all into sort of strategic administrational battles mm. and then went after them one by one in that order and thankfully that all sort of panned out and what you did i think yeah. brilliantly with the documentary as well is you've you kind of brought everyone back together in a weird small way maybe in a big way because those people who did have big grudges are sort of from you guys contacting at first time i've been like pissed off i'm not having anything to do with that slowly over time i've gone yeah do you know what i want to be part of that and and then maybe they did contact james again or maybe they did get friends again you know i know i know i know i know um rich richard file was mm-hmm. kind of the second incarnation of uncle yes. on the second level of album fell out and then over the course of us filming this project him and james you know fell out as friends massively to the point they're not talking for years and it went came back the other way and now they're they're very good friends again and rich came to the to the premiere at the bfi amazing and to support james even though they're not working together creatively anymore they're mates again so yeah it's and that's a great thing and that's what it's really about it's about yeah. friendship it's about you know like i i got to a point in my life where some of my friends were like leaving my area and you know and you lose mates for various mm-hmm. reasons you fall out over silly things so i wanted that to be a key part of the film and that recon- there's a strong reconciliation at the end about being spoiler heavy yeah uh, we, we won't really that, the yeah film, but, um, but it's it's that's kind of the core of what it really is about yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely so the stylization of it yeah it's stunning it's like you've you've like gone to town with all the kind of uh the moments in between if you like the getting from one point to the next yeah. the, the artwork the records and because obviously uncle were and Moax were known for this wonderful stylistic record sleeves and stuff. You've done that with the doc as well. And I loved that. Thanks. I thought I mean, it was I'd, so cool. So the idea structurally for the film was always the first half, the first like 40 minutes to be like hundred miles an hour. Cause that's what it was like for James. You know, James started it when he was 16. By the time he's 21, he's a millionaire. Yeah. And so it has to out. be super fast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, and then my editor had great ideas when he came in, he was like, we've got to treat footage like shadow treated samples. Ah, and nice. so that's what we're doing. That was a great idea. So mm. then that's pursued that to the nth degree. And we really pushed the idea of, um, of not just using like, you know, people to tell the story by using, like you said, the artwork mm-hmm. and, key bits of the music to kind of hint at what's to come mm-hmm. like not just using any old line of lyric but using a lyric which supports the tone or the story element mm. so that was important yeah. yeah and very clever as well and the timeline to be honest with you i i think what i sort of observe 
in terms of Matt's editorial struggles is whenever there was something that he initially wanted and was unable to have, be it for rights issue or it was too expensive, maybe he the the, the then the answer that he found would be then ten times better than the first one. Yeah, uh, the first idea. You find that, a better way through the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then the film kind of becomes what it what it or ultimately it shortens is. the film. Yes, or, which yeah, is how you kind of get these yeah. jumps happen that work. Yeah, there's an element of that. Have you found that some of the fans of of Uncle or that world have gone? Oh, you missed this out. You missed that. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. Because we got that loads, oh, loads yeah. of World of Dance fans. You didn't talk about this. You talk about that. well. There might be a reason for it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, well, we've addressed that. The good thing is the DVD. We've got a great DVD deal with the BFI. Right. And the BFI have put together with us a really cool DVD package. It's got about four hours of unused video. Amazing. So you've got the. St- a lot of the stories to do with the visual identity with Futura and Ben Drury and Swifty. There's more detail on that. There's more detail on Uncle Singles before science fiction. If you really care about, like, there was a guy in the band called Tim Goldsworthy. Mm-hmm. There's more detail on that. There's, um, and there's like more detail on Shadow and James' relationship. So all of those areas, which we were criticized for. I mean, one of the first reviews we got was in Variety and they said, oh, they leave out this. And we were like, yeah, I left that out because it was boring and the footage was rubbish and it's on the DVD extra. So the key thing with a documentary is that you're never going to please everyone. You, and even James, James wanted more of the amazing things he'd done in there. And I was like, I can't put them all in there. It's just, there isn't room. Right. So yeah. How did you go then from, uh, you've done South by Southwest. If films now getting some hype, more people are coming to you. How did you then get distribution? How did you get the full backing of everyone? Well, we, we were in festivals for like a year and a half. And we did like, again, because we were finishing the film at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, was, there was kind of this, like this multiple dual, this versions ju- that went out. Dual right, right, okay. is like there was the, festi- the film festival version. We thought, well, we've got to have the life in the film festivals whilst we knew we were finished working on the final version of the film. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, we were sending out the festival version and polishing off the, the what would be the one you've just seen, actually. Yeah. So so there was that. And then along that journey, we spoke to many, many companies. And then finally, we were able to sort of settle with a Trafalgar releasing. Right. Who then- just, they did the Grace Jones doc just before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were like, you know, they're a new company and they used to be affiliated with Picture House, if you know much about them. Yeah. yeah and they course. were doing a lot of music live event stuff and it was all yeah and they really got what we were trying to do and what we wanted to achieve with this and and gave us a lot of sort of creative freedom in terms of the ideas of what mm-hmm. we wanted to do and push the film so like one of the things that we'd been talking to the BFI about was doing like a really cool launch event the idea being that you know you buy your ticket uh, you could you maybe something interesting would happen before the film which we then thankfully got uh, pitch black came on board mm-hmm. where you can it's a, mu- a musical immersive experience where you listen to music with 400 people in pitch black in a really cool with an eye mask with an eye mask on and you just wow. sort of just immerse yourself in the music james we, gave us three new uncle tracks for that as well oh, is, yeah so right. we did that before before the and that's in all cinemas now yeah yeah that's it's, part it's, the of film the is still experience playing. yeah right so, so there was that, and then, and then obviously you screen the film, and then the Q and A, and then James would like spin afterwards at the after party. So it becomes a hot, it becomes a big event. It yeah, becomes and, not just a and all the partners event. came together. They really sort of bought in. So like UMC and Island Records, we managed to agree them to get to get the the soundtrack released on the same day, mm. and then we got the soundtrack on vinyl and CD to the BFI, so people if they were interested or so inclined could buy it. Right after the premiere, and that's most where people it probably did as well. A lot, a few people did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then we even managed to get uh, Island Record beer 
uh, free beer for everybody who watched the film. Yeah. So when it came out Island in the Records cinema, have their own IPA. Yeah, yeah, you, you could you could have, <laughs> grab yourself a free beer and it. listen to James for free, uh, spin some tunes, and they did a really wicked set that night. And yeah, Max had, right though, Trafalgar gave us a lot of freedom to like all those ideas Max talked about were were Max ideas and my ideas to like just do something different for mm-hmm. a doc and make it more of a fun night out. Honestly, well done. It's a Fucking great film. It's really <laughs> it's cool. cool. It's really cool. It's released now, right? Everyone can buy it yeah, now. I don't know where the podcast is going online, but yes, it's in cinemas now. There's yep. like, it's coming to the end of its cinema run, but I think it's still going to be in cinemas for there'll be several screenings towards the end of September and in, about, into into October as there's well. There's about 15 screenings, to be fair, and there's a couple yep. more. Even they added, They're adding one today uh, at Piccadilly as well. So I think it's sort of it's expanded beyond what people were sort of expecting, ourselves included, which is great. And yep. as it happens, the DVD is also out as well. In the, We did a special version and SVA, uh, for HMV. So HMV have got what we call the sci-fi edition, which is like this lovely orange uh, sort of version of the film. And it's just DVD. And then the, as the, in it looks orange? Yeah, yeah it has an orange design. A variant version of the yeah. poster, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. in line with okay. the science fiction colours, if, if you're a mega geek. Yeah, yeah, yeah but we've cool. made sure that the, the layers <laughs> of detail are. Are, are there in terms of the nice design and artwork. And then the BFI box set version, uh, which is presently uh, available. available and it's now, also yeah. on, you know, okay. it's on your digital platforms now. So you can get it on iTunes, get it on Amazon Prime, you can get it on, um, you know, Virgin Movies, Sky Store, all of that. So it's just gone on all of that. Perfect. So, is there a website for it or is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Themanfrommoax.com. Perfect. Go there. Check out this film. Uh, you've heard the trailer. It's really cool. I, I really recommend you watching this film, whether into music or not. I really enjoyed it. Really did. Um, and what about you guys? Where can people follow you? Like in, on your socials? Uh, and- yeah. So, um, Capture is our production company. So, uh, we're on Twitter as Capture Tweets, Capture underscore tweets. Nice. And um, just, uh, wearecapture.com is the, the company website. Cool. Well, on that note, you can follow us at Filmmakers Pod. <laughs> that was a bit tangential, that wasn't it? You can follow me at Charles Alderson on Twitter. If you want an indie film shout out, if you've got a Kickstarter, you've got your film released, let us know and we will shout it out on the podcast. Um, being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And if you're lucky enough to do well and rise up, it's your duty to send that elevator back down. If you want your discount at Raindown to get 20% off, the link is in the show notes. It's brilliant. Get involved. Get there. Raindown is amazing. The next show is out every Tuesday, as always. We will see you next Tuesday. Um, thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you very much, Mac. You're very welcome. Thank you very much yourself. Pleasure. All right. Uh, cheers, boys. Really appreciate it. This cheers. has been amazing. Take care. Bye. Nice one. Thanks. See you. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. Check out more shows like it at oddfixnetwork.com.